Ephesians 1, Ephesians 1, verses 11 through 14. This is the word of God for us this morning. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we have acquired possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Will you pray with me? Lord, you heard our song, and I do believe it's a prayer. Show us Christ in your word. Show us truth, show us hope, show us the joy that we have set before us, and enable us, empower us to honor you with how we think, how we believe, how we hope, how we rejoice. Work on our souls, save souls, bring us to repentance, bring us to hope. Rearrange our priorities that we would match yours. These are our prayers, and that you would just do your will in us. In Christ's name, amen. You can be seated. How many of you have gotten involved in that whole DNA ancestry fad going on right now? Bunch of weirdos. <laughs> Y'all know there are some major companies out there offering to help you get to know who you are through analysis of your DNA. They'll take your sample, add it to their database, probably sell it to a foreign government, <laughs> and then let you know, according to their records, what different nationalities make up your history. Now, you may already be able to guess that I'm not into the whole ancestry thing, but I do have to admit that the desire to know who you are and where you come from comes to us, I think, from a deeper place than many of us may realize. God, in his word, has taught us to know where we fit into the story of history. And this is because God has been designing and telling one great story for all of history and beyond. What is God's story? God created. People rebelled against God and brought sin into the world. God promised he would rescue a people out of the world for himself by sending a Savior. And God promised he would bring that Savior into the world through a nation called Israel. And eventually, God brought the Savior he'd promised. And the amazing thing about the Savior that God sent is that the Savior was a man, but not just any man. The Savior is God the Son who took on human flesh. The Savior is Jesus, who lived a perfect life, died to pay for the sins of all God will ever forgive, and rose from the grave. The Savior is the perfect fulfillment of the story that God is telling, a story that highlights God's love and mercy, His justice and His wrath, and everything about God that is perfect. Where do you fit into the story of history? What would your DNA tests tell you? 
The funny thing is, when it comes to where you fit into the story of history, the first thing that you probably ought to know from Scripture is that your DNA has absolutely nothing to do with where you fit into the big story of God's glory and creation. Your nationality means basically nothing. Your heritage, your skin color, your ancestry is just not a big part of who you really are. Instead, what matters is whose you are. Do you belong to the Lord? Are you part of the family of God? Well, this morning we're going to see in the Word of God... More reasons to praise God for grace. We've already seen in verses 3 through 10 calls to praise God for little things like salvation, sanctification, adoption, redemption, forgiveness, spiritual wisdom, God's eternal plan, and through it all, grace. Let's go forward and let's find three points in this passage, three more reasons to praise God And without using any sort of DNA testing whatsoever, I will let you know where you and I fit into the family tree of the Lord our God. Ready? Point number one. Praise God for our inheritance. Praise God for our inheritance. Verse 11 begins, In Him we have obtained an inheritance. I hope, by the way, this helps you to understand that it's not hard to figure out where my points come from. Back in verse 5, we were called to praise God for His graciously adopting us as His very own children. It is a glorious thing to go from being an enemy of God to being a part of God's own family. And now we see that not only has God made us family members in the life that we live at present, but God has also promised to us a future inheritance in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when you think of the the, the word inheritance, what do you think of? You probably think of money or property that a person receives when a relative dies. You hear the word inheritance and you start hoping for a long-lost uncle that you don't know nothing about, right? But God has promised us an inheritance to come, a glorious future that is wonderful beyond our wildest dreams. And unlike an inheritance that you get from a dead relative, Our inheritance with the Lord includes our living with Him eternally. The word for inheritance here in verse 11 is actually a word that means to choose something by lot. So if you could think back to the book Joshua in the Old Testament, do you remember how they divided up the land of Israel? God ordered that the people draw up a map of the land and there were all sorts of tribal boundaries all over the nation's land. And then the people were to cast lots to see which tribe would inherit which section of the land. So the inheritance there meant your tribe's promised home and it came to the tribes as they cast lots. Here we have an inheritance. It's like the lots have fallen for us in a great place just like it says in Psalm 16. Now, some people who translate verse 11, depending on your Bible's translation, may be shaping the words to say that the inheritance here is that God obtains an inheritance, that God God makes us His inheritance. The language could support that. See, 
the tr what's the story of history, right? God will rescue for himself a people, and the people God rescues, they are a gift given by God the Father to God the Son. See John chapter 6. They are a people purchased by the blood of the Son. They are people made holy by the Son. They are people united with the Lord eternally. And so it is true to say that, that the people are an inheritance for God. That's okay. And we won't, don't want to discount that translation, but I think there's something better. I think our translation does it better when it says that we who are the children of God, we who are the forgiven in Christ, we have received not only forgiveness at present, which is a good thing, we have received a promise from God of a future inheritance. And what I want to do right now is just read some scripture that talks about our forever future because God wants you to think about these things and God wants you to find joy in these things and God does not want you to ignore these things, Christians. So just listen. You can write the references down if you want to. John 14, 1 through 3, Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Does that give you hope just to hear that? See, Jesus promised his disciples he would prepare a perfect home for them to live in forever. There's many rooms in my father's house. And that's figurative language that points to the joy of eternal life. Hebrews 9.15 says, Therefore, He, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Do you hear that? Eternal inheritance? Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Or 1 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4 say, Blessed be the God and Father of, our, of the Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So we've already received in Christ forgiveness for our sins. We've already received adoption as Christ's, as God's children through Christ. But now we have future promises before us having an inheritance. And having an inheritance guarantees us that the God who saved you will keep you. He has promised us a forever with him and we could never lose that forever. Well, what does that look like? What's it going to be like when you get that kind of inheritance? What kind of promises has Jesus made? Jesus has promised us that a day is coming in the future when he will return to earth from heaven. And upon Jesus' return to earth from heaven, he will set right all that is wrong with the universe. And upon his return, Jesus will bring with him all who have ever been forgiven and bring them into their glorious inheritance. God's told us that even now, 
when believers die, we enter joy, perfect joy in the presence of God. But there is a day to come when Jesus will return. And on that day, Jesus will bring with him the souls of all who have died and raise their bodies from the graves and grant to those believers brand new everlasting bodies. This is part of our inheritance. So verses for that. First Thessalonians 4, 16 to 18 read, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Again, do you hear the scripture commanding you to encourage each other with thoughts of the resurrection and the return of Christ? 1 Corinthians 15, 50 and following say this. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and when the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death! Where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Be encouraged, Christians. Jesus has promised everyone who is forgiven by him resurrection from the dead, new bodies that will live forever apart from sin in perfect peace and joy. And what about that eternal home? Revelation 21, 1 to 4 gives us some detail. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Listen now. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. God has promised all of his children an inheritance. It will be eternal life. 
it will be forever with no evil, no sorrow, no pain. It will be a forever with God. Remember that God made us for the display of God's glory. In our inheritance, we will forever live to experience all the joy and all the glory that God, the infinite God, could give us. Would you like to challenge God and just say, I don't know, I don't know if you could give me more joy than this. Because He will in your inheritance. And if you understand what this means, that there is a glorious inheritance of joy in front of you, you can rejoice in our inheritance in the Lord Jesus, knowing that God will never run out of joys for us to experience. So Christians, think about your inheritance and let it bring you hope and let it bring you joy. Fair enough? Point number two. Praise God for predestination. Ephesians 1 verse 11 says, In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. As I said to us in the introduction, God has forever been telling the story of His glory. You guys are with me on that, right? Will you be sure of this fact? God is telling a perfect story. Do you guys buy that? Nothing that God has ever done in God's story has ever been a failure. No part of what God has planned has ever failed to come to pass. God has never tried to do something that did not happen. Our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. God is perfect, all-knowing, almighty, and sovereign. And as Paul praises God for grace, and he points to the inheritance that the children of God have in Jesus, he again emphasizes that this is all part of the eternal plan of God. What God has accomplished in the universe, what God is accomplishing in the universe, what God is accomplishing in you as an individual, this is all part of the forever perfect plan of God. And here, Paul again uses the word predestination. And I said this to you in an earlier message. The word there is not a hard word to understand. It means to determine beforehand a destination. And since all of you have Siri tell you where to drive, you know what this means, right? Plot my destination. Let's go. It means to determine one's destination beforehand. God has an end in mind for his story. And in the story God is telling, God has a perfect plan for exactly where every piece in the story winds up. And if you look back over verses 3 to 14, this singularly long sentence in its original language, you're going to see that we repeatedly see language that points us to the fact that our salvation, our inheritance in Christ, it is the result of God's action before time ever began. Verse 4, Paul says about God, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Verse 5, we discover that in love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons. Now, once again, Paul emphasizes for us that our inheritance is the result of God's predestination. 
So Paul wants believers who are reading this letter to understand that our salvation is the work of God from its very beginning to its perfect completion. Before there was time, God chose, predestined, elected, all who are saved to their salvation. Then in time, Jesus Christ came and did the work that was required to purchase our salvation. And then Whenever we truly repent and believe in Jesus, God applies to us the salvation which he planned, determined before the dawn of time. So Christians, we have an inheritance. We have reasons for confidence. We have reason to praise God and thank him. And every bit of it has to do with the fact that our salvation has been God's sovereign work, God's sovereign will from before the dawn of time. If God chose us, if God paid our debt, if God granted us righteousness and God adopted us, God will keep us and surely grant us that inheritance. Now, in truth... There is no biblical debate as to whether or not God predestined people for salvation. The text here is clear that predestination is part of our salvation. The question between faithful Christians, and this is fair, there are Christians who have trouble with one another just understanding how does predestination work. And the question is this, based upon what did God predestine our salvation? That's the only argument question among Christians that can even be close to being a biblical question. So the question is, did God predestine our salvation based on our future choices? Or did God predestine our salvation, his choice of his elect, based on himself? That's the biblical question. And in this passage, what Paul says is simply that we have been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. We're predestined according to the will of God. God chose his elect based on his perfect counsel and his perfect will so that the full credit for our salvation belongs completely 100% to God. Now, we'll regularly say at a point like this one, don't misunderstand. God is fully sovereign, and man is fully responsible for his decisions. God does not force anybody not to come to him. There are no people in the world who want to repent and want to believe, but are not able to because God didn't choose them. That's never been the Bible's teaching. The intervention of God is not required to make people sin or disbelieve. Just like the intervention of parents is not required to make children sin. Right, parents? How many of you taught your children to kick and scream and stay up all night? How many of you taught your children tell a lie to try to get out of trouble? How many of, them, how many of your children learn that stuff on their own? There you go, right? The intervention of God is not required to make you sin or make you disbelieve. The intervention of God is required to change a dead human heart and make you be born again. God has to work to make you want Him, not to make you hate Him. 
God is good and God is sovereign and we are sinners and we are responsible for every action we take. And all who are lost are lost because they desire to fight against God and not to submit to the Lord. And all who are saved are saved because of the working of God in them, a work that God predestined before the dawn of time and then completed in the fullness of time. And all who are saved, genuinely saved, will remain saved, will stay saved because God will never lose any person he chose. Because God's story is not full of any form of imperfection. Now many people are put off by the doctrine of predestination. And I sympathize because I've heard it presented terribly in time, from time to time. The doctrine is intended by God to be a beautiful thing, friends. So believers, understand a few things. The doctrine of predestination means that you give God 100% of the glory for your salvation. Because I believe any belief that requires God to await your decision, any, 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 any doctrine that has God waiting to see if you do it right so he can respond in the way he wants to, that robs God of at least a portion of the weight of glory he deserves. Another thing, though, predestination, the doctrine gives believers hope. Because we know that if God chose us and saved us, he won't lose us. Aren't you glad about that? How many of you think you would lose yourself if it was left up to you? Yeah. If our being initially saved did not depend on us, our being kept does not depend on us either, praise God. And the doctrine of predestination should give you tremendous confidence for evangelism. Because if God is the one who works a person's salvation, we can share an honest, clear, complete gospel because we know that the success of our evangelism does not depend on us, but on God. Do you honestly believe that you could bear the weight of the burden if you believe that the way you talked to somebody, that your skill or lack of skill was going to be the determining factor in whether they believed? That would be terrifying. And thankfully, it's not biblically true. And friends, these are all reasons I would say that we need to praise God for predestination because God has given us hope, confidence in our salvation, in our being kept, in our sharing of the gospel. We give God the glory. Third point this morning, praise God for his eternal plan. I know we had that point before, but I couldn't think of a better way to say it. 12 to 14 says, So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So now Paul gives a more personal for him purpose for the issue of predestination in verse 12. To the Ephesians, Paul writes, we've been predestined so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. 
See, part of the ultimate plan of God, that eternal story that God's been telling, the predestined plan of God, includes that people like Paul, Jewish Christians who believed in the early other years after of the church, that those people would be saved and this would be to the glory of God. Now, by the way, if the story stopped here, this would lead you to draw a very wrong conclusion, or it could. Somebody reading Paul's words here without context might assume that what Paul is doing is drawing a distinction between the Jewish believer and the Gentile believer. Because all of a sudden, from verses 12 through 14, we see Paul talking about what we experienced, meaning the Jews who first believed, and then what you now experienced, meaning the Ephesian Gentile believers. And there were many Christians in the first century who really did want to make a significant distinction and require Gentiles to be saved in a slightly different way by first coming under Jewish law and then being saved by grace through faith in Christ. And here it is. Paul says, all this is according to the glorious eternal plan of God that the Jews, the nations that birthed the Christ into the world, that they would, they would be the first believers. But listen to me, if you let yourself think that this passage is about drawing a line of distinction between Jews and Gentiles, between us and them, well, actually the way Paul says it, between we and you, you would be missing the point of the passage. Don't forget the Great Commission. Don't forget the story of the book of Acts. Yes, the disciples were Jewish believers and they received the Spirit of God and salvation first. But those Jewish Christians, what did they do? They immediately went to the nations to make disciples. And they helped people of all backgrounds find the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And no longer is there to be any barrier or any boundary. All who believe, regardless of their DNA, are going to be saved, forgiven, and granted an eternal inheritance. If you know the book of Acts very well, some of you do, some of you love Acts, some of you don't, right? How many of you just really enjoy reading the book of Acts? Yeah. A couple of you really like it, right? It's pretty cool. Do you remember the first time Paul spent any real time in the city of Ephesus? It was in Acts 19. The Ephesians were a Gentile group. They had no connection to the Jewish nation. The people of Israel, they, they, there was no Israel in them. No law that they were following. No connection to the customs. None of them were off to the temple to hang out and worship. And the book of Acts seems to tell us that, man, if God would save those Gentiles, I mean, they were the Gentiliest of Gentiles. If God would save them by grace through faith alone, God would save anybody by grace through faith alone. And Paul goes there and he shared the gospel in Ephesus in Acts 19. Remember, it's a weird story because they're like, we believe, what are you, you were baptized? Yeah, we were baptized. Who... Did you receive the Holy Spirit? We have no idea what you're talking about. Well, what baptism did you get, Johns? Oh, you guys don't know yet. John was promising a coming Savior. But guys, he came. That's the story. Paul shared the gospel in Ephesus, and the men in Ephesus believed, and they were baptized as Christians, believing and trusting in Jesus alone. And in a significant moment in Acts 19, God poured out the Holy Spirit on these Gentile believers in just the same way that he had previously poured the Spirit of God out on Jewish believers at Pentecost. God marked 
The Ephesians there, as true believers, they were truly saved people. They were stamped with or sealed with the Holy Spirit of God. And I think that's exactly what Paul has in his mind in verse 13 when Paul says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. See, Paul had said, yeah, People from a Jewish background were the first to believe, but now Paul says, you Gentiles from Ephesus, and by the way, all y'all are a room full of Gentiles pretty much too, unless somebody I don't know. Paul says, you know what? All these Gentiles from Ephesus, the moment they were presented with the true gospel of salvation in Jesus, they believed and they were marked with exactly the same Holy Spirit as were the Jewish believers. See, Paul's point is not here to make a distinction between Jew and Gentile, but to rejoice in the fact that now that Christ has come, there is no longer a reason for any person of any ethnic group to claim any higher position than any other ethnic group because all who are in Christ have no us and them, no we and you, but all in Christ are the one family of God, predestined by God the Father, redeemed by Christ the Son, sealed by the Spirit of God. Guys, that matters way more than I think you get. I don't have time to help you get it yet, though, but the rest of the book's about it, so it's okay. What does Paul say about the Holy Spirit here? The Holy Spirit came upon the Ephesians at their salvation. Paul says the Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. When any person of any nation or any background comes to faith in Christ, that person is given by God a glorious gift. Every person who believes, doesn't matter what color you are, doesn't matter your background, doesn't matter who you were before, every believer has the Spirit of God come and indwell us, living inside us. Romans 8 9 says, right? You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. And anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. Or 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? The presence of the Spirit of God in our lives is a mark that we belong to Jesus. Now, the, the presence of the Spirit of God is not equally dramatic as we see from person to person, even in the book of Acts. The Ephesians, when they first received the gospel, had the Spirit of God come on them in such a way that they experienced some radical spiritual gifts. They spoke in languages they did not previously know. That's really quite cool. Uh, you know, I, I would like to be able to speak another language. I, I don't have that ability. The Spirit gave these people like instant Rose, you know, um, Rosetta Stone downloads or something. I mean, it was just like immediately they could speak a language they didn't know before. That's what the gift of tongues is, is being able to speak a real language that you've never been able to speak before. But this was done by God as a mark for everybody to see that this group, these complete Gentiles, they were saved in just the same way as was Paul. So you should not expect 
for people to continue to have that miraculous manifestation of God's spirit whenever people are saved because now God has already shown us in his word that everyone who truly believes is saved regardless of their nationality. But even if you don't have a dramatic outward manifestation of the coming of the Spirit when you're saved, everybody who knows Jesus has been given by God the Spirit of God to live within us. And the Spirit of God helps us love God more, helps us turn from sin, helps us understand the Bible, helps us grow as believers, and does so, so much more in us. So again, what was the point of the Ephesians in Acts 19 speaking in tongues? The point was so that God could say, hey, look, I saved the Gentiliest of Gentiles by grace alone, through faith alone, without them submitting to Jewish law because it does not matter your DNA background. What matters is are you in the family of God by grace through faith or not? Because if you're in, you're in. That's it, nothing else. Make sense? And that's why God didn't have to keep pouring out the Spirit in the same way on every person who believed. He didn't in the book of Acts. And once that period of history ended, we don't see that type of outpouring of God's Spirit for real. But what we see is that the Word of God has taught us what we need to know. The Gospel has made it clear. And we trust in the God who gave us the true Gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Now, God giving us the Spirit... That is the guarantee of our inheritance. And the word for guarantee, that's a word that points to a thing given in pledge. So maybe in the first century, if I borrowed a valuable tool from you, I might give you something of value of mine that you could hold in pledge as a promise that I would return to you the thing I borrowed. So maybe, you know, if I needed to borrow your ox or your plow or something like that. I might give you my seal so that you could say, okay, I'll give you your seal back when you return what you borrow from me. Maybe it'd be a valuable garment of mine, whatever. But God says he's given us his spirit as that sort of deposit, that that sort of guarantee, that sort of proof of what is to come. The spirit of God in us is the guarantee that we will have eternal life forever with God because we're in Christ. And and notice as Paul ends verse 14, look what he says. He uses a really familiar phrase, to the praise of his glory. This is exactly what Paul said about Jewish believers coming to faith in verse 12. It's exactly what Paul said about the salvation of all believers in verse 6. Here, he applies the phrase to the salvation specifically of the Gentile believers in Ephesus. Why? Of course, this is to emphasize that our salvation is all about the glory of God. But he says it in exactly the same way in verses 12 and in verse 14 so that he can drive home the point that there is no difference whatsoever in the salvation of Jew or Gentile. All who are saved are saved because of the very same gospel. They're saved in the very same way. They're given the very same status before God. And I would suggest to you that these last verses, they call us to praise God for this glorious eternal plan of God. Because from forever ago, God the Father has predestined people to salvation, Jew and Gentile. Jesus Christ came to redeem sinners, Jews and Gentiles. And the Holy Spirit is given to all believers, Jew and Gentile. 
God's amazing plan is that he chose a people, a nation, through which to bring Jesus into the world, but the Jesus God brings into the world is going to save people without any sort of ethnic distinction whatsoever. Now, there's a whole lot more of this plan of God in the rest of the book of Ephesians. This is like an intro. But even now, start thinking deeply about what it means that Jesus saves without any reference to your DNA test results, your skin color, or your language. And let that make you praise God for his eternal plan. Guys, just let me say this. When you see Christians, people claiming to be Christians, but who are bringing division in the church based on ethnic background, historic background, skin color, language, or any other thing, please know that those who do such a thing are doing exactly the opposite of what the Word of God is doing right here. So, praise God for God's eternal plan. God has told a glorious story of salvation that is absolutely wonderfully amazing. I want to ask two types of questions now, though, as we wrap up. First, are you a believer in the Lord Jesus? Have you trusted in him? Have you found forgiveness for your sins? Listen, if you're here this morning and you have not come to Jesus for salvation, I really don't want you to worry overly much about the eternal plan of God. You need to think about where you stand before God right now. And I can say this to you with, absolutely, with absolute certainty. God has commanded all people everywhere to repent. That's a command for you too. Will you turn from your sin? Will you turn from thinking that you can be master of your own life? Will you surrender yourself to the God who made you? Will you believe in Jesus, God the Son, who died and rose from the grave to rescue the people of God? Will you ask God to forgive you because of Jesus? If you will, you will be saved. All who repent and believe in Jesus, crying out to him for mercy in faith, will be saved. And the beautiful inheritance of the saints, the glorious gift of salvation, it is for everyone who will repent and believe. So I urge you all, come to Jesus today. Christians, is there anybody you wouldn't urge that to? No. Everyone who will repent and believe will be saved. Now, are you someone who has trusted in Jesus? Many yeses came in the room. Then bless God. Praise God for saving sinners like you and like me. Praise God for your salvation. Give God all the glory for your salvation. And thank God that he saves us and he grants us his spirit and he grants us an inheritance that is forever regardless of our DNA background. Because once a person is in Christ, we have only one family tree. It's the family of God. Let's bow together and let's pray. Father, we are grateful again to have been together under your word. And Lord, we are inadequate to live up to it. We're inadequate to give you the praise you so richly deserve. We'll never give you enough. But I pray, God, that from this beautiful, beautiful text, you will set our hearts on granting you 
on giving you the glory that is already yours and that you will set our minds on the inheritance to come and that you will help us rejoice in your glorious plan of building a people of God from every nation. And God, in all things, in all things, we say thank you. We ask for mercy in Jesus and we look forward to the grace that has been given us, the, the inheritance that is to come. It's in Christ's holy name we would pray. Amen.